Well, how do you end a letter like 1 Corinthians that addresses so many different topics? I've had to address how some of you disdain me and thinking me unworthy of the title apostle because I don't measure up to your worldly standards. I had to set you straight on wisdom and remind you that wisdom of this world is not the wisdom of God and that Jesus' death on the cross is indeed the wisdom of God, even if it is the folly of this world. I've had to correct gross sexual immorality, address marriage issues, warn you of idolatry, teach you not to cause each other to stumble back into sin and instruct you about spiritual gifts and how to use them and inform you that they should always be used in love. I've had to retrain your thinking about status and help you see that no amount of spirituality and power is worth anything without love. I've had to call you back to the clear gospel of the resurrection and reprimand your pagan notions of an immaterial afterlife, reminding you that Jesus reigns and that God is putting all things under his feet and that the last enemy to be destroyed and placed under his feet will be death. And with such a breadth of themes and so important a message, do I just sign off with a trite, love Paul? Is that how you end a letter like this? I can't just do that. I did have to wrap this up somehow to give some kind of summary and hopefully close out on an encouraging note. And so here's how I did it. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prissa, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus, amen. I opened my letter by addressing the division in your church and your complaints against me. Some complained that I'm not dynamic enough, that I'm not as spiritual as others and I don't follow through on my word, that I'm not all that spiritually powerful or impressive, and some that complained that I won't even show my face in Corinth again. But I am coming back to you, and I hope to spend a significant time among you. It may take me some time to finish 
what I've started in this letter. But understand why I have not yet returned. It's not because I have nothing more to say to you. Rather, God has opened a door for effective ministry in Ephesus, and I must stay here and pursue what he has provided. So far from being afraid, I'm remaining in Ephesus because, in part, there are many adversaries to what God is doing here, and I want to ensure that the kingdom is firmly established through the strength of the church that has been planted here. Please understand that my intention and desire to come to you is not based on a whim, nor do I avoid you out of fear that some of you no longer care for me. Rather, I am where I am by the will of God. You look at matters according to your will and what benefits you, but you should look at matters according to what benefits the kingdom of God. Sometimes our best intentions are not God's will, and we must live according to his will and not according to our own. And so when the time is right, I will come, and I will spend time with you if the Lord permits. Our intentions must always be submitted to his let us live in a way that does not view circumstances in a merely fleshly sense, as if all that goes on in this world is subject to our desires and subject to our control, nor that it's just happenstance. No, God is at work. He's in control. He is leading my life. I am where I am by his grace and through his will. So you too submit to his will. Do not judge circumstances merely by what you want, by, but by what God wants and the opportunities he provides as you remain faithful to him. Stop thinking you're so spiritual that you believe your own evil desires are the will of God. Look for the Lord's will instead of your own. And when you find it, submit to it. Even though I cannot come now when my protege Timothy arrives, make sure that you're hospitable to him and that you treat him well. He is my representative and he is doing God's work. I know that some of you have been embittered toward me, but you can change that by honoring those I send to you. Do not treat him with disdain. Instead, help him on his way. When he returns to me, make sure that you have provided for his physical needs and the needs of his journey and do it in peace. Surely it is time that you put away your disdain for me, the one who preached the gospel to you and who labored over you and who continues to pray for you. You can begin to do that by treating my son in the faith, Timothy, with the respect that he deserves. I will take this as a sign of healing between us. And isn't that what you should desire? Are we not one body in Christ Jesus? Haven't you learned that we are not just individuals, but that we belong to one another, and that as Jesus made peace between the Father and us, so we should pursue peace between one another. Here's your chance. If you treat Timothy well, I will know that you've taken my message to heart and that you desire reconciliation. So be careful to pursue peace in this matter. And I look forward to hearing how God has changed your hearts through how you've treated Timothy. I do have something that you will take as bad news, and if I were a lesser man, I would say, I told you so. I know that many of you prefer Apollos over me. 
You find him more impressive. You think he's more spiritual. He's a better speaker. And you've even imagined that there is some kind of rivalry between us, like there is among you. Well, there is no rivalry between us as we both labor for the gospel. Even after hearing of your preference for him, envy did not enter my heart. I urged him to come to you, but he, perhaps not wanting to stir up your sinful passions and hearts eager for drama and lips ready to speak gossip, has refused to come to you. He'll come when he has a chance, but please understand, we are at peace with one another. We work together for the gospel, and you should follow our lead. As long as division remains among you that is based on merely earthly preferences and appeals to false spirituality, you will not be effective in proclaiming the gospel, the good news, that God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus. So get rid of these imagined rivalries and instead pursue peace with one another and with me and let's work together for the kingdom of God. Speaking of working together, remember not only that that there is no rivalry between Apollos and I, but that there should be no rivalry between you either. As I've reminded you often throughout this letter, you are family, you're a body. However, while all are of equal value and there is no competition, even in the body there is leadership, and even in family there are elders. Some of you have been in the faith longer than others, particularly the household of Stephanus. And it's not just a matter of who's been around the longest, but Stephanus and his household have devoted themselves to serving the saints. Don't ignore that ministry as if it is of no value to you. Don't be so caught up in thinking about who is the greatest or the most spiritual that you neglect to submit to those that God has placed among you as servants and examples and shepherds. Submit to such people as these because they are doing the Lord's work and will help you advance in the Lord and walk in peace if you will stop your bickering and instead follow their lead. Don't think of this as demeaning. This is God's grace to your church. He has provided what you need to be mature and faithful. The men and women of these first and faithful households will help you be strong in the Lord. Don't neglect them in favor of your own opinions. Don't ignore them and only seek your own ways. How foolish would it be for you to ignore those who could help you mature in the faith and learn to love one another? This is the kind of people these men are. When Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus came to visit me bringing news of you, in spite of the bad news of your antagonism against me, your sin and your rivalries, which have led me to great concern, these men were still able to refresh my spirit. They're like a cool brook on a hot day. They're like shade in the desert. I wish that you would all behave like this toward one another, that you would seek to refresh each other, to bring joy and receive one another's, and and revive one another's spirits, rather than seeking your own good. So recognize and honor those who do and seek to imitate them in their service to Christ and his people. Consider how you might bring joy to one another and stir up and refresh one another's spirits. What might you do to lift up a brother or sister in Christ and bring encouragement that will reignite their faith and their passion for him? 
Rather than merely seeking your own refreshment, look to refresh others. Remember what the Proverbs say, the one who waters will himself be watered. If you will refresh others, you will find that you too will be refreshed and strengthened in the Lord. And in all of this, remember that you are not alone. Don't just try to do things your own way, but remember that God is building his kingdom throughout the world. You aren't the only ones. So don't be arrogant and think that you're more spiritual than others and the same rules don't apply to you. The churches in Asia, yes, God is at work there too, send you their greetings. They are concerned for you and are connected to you through Jesus. And Aquila and and Priscilla send their greetings as well. They even have a new church meeting in their home and that church sends you its greetings too. God's word is growing throughout the world. Let that encourage you and let that humble you. God has a plan that includes you, but it's bigger than you are. You're not at the center of God's plan. Jesus is. He is at work among other people as well. And if you will keep this larger perspective, it will help you humble yourselves and get rid of your arrogance. There are bigger things going on in the world than your little competitions over spirituality. There are bigger things going on than your preoccupation with appearances. And God wants to include you in those bigger things. He wants you to be active in the work of building his kingdom. And he's connected you to his growing worldwide family through Jesus. Don't let spiritual pride get in the way. Humble yourselves and join the work God is doing in the world. Start in your corner of the world, in Corinth. There are many there who need to know the truth about spirituality, and you can't show them that truth through strife and envy. What's more, greet one another with a holy kiss. Yes, I know that's the typical form of greeting, but let God sanctify even the little things and make them reminders of your affection for one another and your place in God's work. He is working to make all things new through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Even the little things of life must be brought under the reign of Christ so that he is everything in your life. And that brings us to the end I'm signing off in my own handwriting as an assurance to you of the authenticity of what you've read in this letter and as an assurance to you of my own concern for you. If anyone does not love the Lord, that is, if anyone deviates from the gospel of Jesus as I have preached it to you, if they claim that Jesus has not come, that God did not raise him from the dead, that it's all a myth and a metaphor, that Jesus is not coming back, that there is no need for righteousness through the Holy Spirit, then do not listen to that person and do not associate with people like that. Put them out from among you. Don't tolerate such a person among you. That person is under God's wrath. May Jesus return quickly. The grace of Jesus be with you. Remember that life in God's kingdom is all of grace. It is his gift from beginning to end. I do not all mean that you have no participation, nor that you should not exert effort or attempt moral progress or be ambitious in your work for the Lord. Of course you should be. But remember that it is God working in you in all these things. Where you have success, It is his. Where you fail, rely on his forgiveness and enabling strength to give you victory. Finally, let me express my love for you personally. Yes, you have been the cause of a great deal of pain. 
Yes, you have broken my heart and your sin has angered me on many occasions. But I love you all in Christ Jesus and that love has not wavered even though you have wavered. Because of Christ, my affection for you extends beyond my frustrations and heartache and because of his love, I love you. Amen. And that's how you close a letter like 1 Corinthians. I'm switching back to Pastor Stephen now. And Paul, Paul closed by speaking from the heart, so to speak. So I want to close this series of messages by doing the same for just a couple of moments. I confess that I wanted to preach through this book, and I felt led to do so because it addresses many of the issues that we currently face in our church and in our culture. Three that were especially on my heart as we began this series of messages were the need for unity, issues of sexual immorality, and spiritual gifts. And I knew that this book addresses those things. And so I thought, what better way to learn the Word of God together in a manner that's applicable to where we are than 1 Corinthians. It's no secret that we're in a time of change as a church. If you haven't noticed, some things have changed in the last three years. Some of that change was precipitated by COVID, which is an ongoing landscape that all churches are having to learn to deal with. But another large part of that change took place because of pastoral and leadership changes and transitions. And since these two things took place simultaneously for us, it made for an even more interesting period of change in our church. Change can often produce feelings of loss and can shake some people's sense of belonging or of ownership. In any of the changes that we have instituted, it's never been my aim to alienate anyone. And where that's happened, I'm, I'm sorry that it has. But change was necessary and is necessary, both for practical and for spiritual reasons. Sometimes change helps us to see that we need to move from a place of comfort to a place of promise. God wants us to be involved in his growing kingdom. And it's not that we weren't before, it's just that we have to adapt to his work and our landscape over time. And also, we have to be nimble enough to follow as his Holy Spirit leads us and guides us. And I want to thank you for remaining, for the most part, united throughout change. Thank you for loving those who found it difficult to change. Thank you for remembering that church is more than systems and services, but is the family of God and the body of Christ. And I want to encourage you to continue to grow in unity and act like the body Let's not allow rivalry or preferences, whether a preference for the past or a preference for a particular style or a preference for something else. Let us not allow that to keep us from the unity God intends and the gifts he gives through that unity. And so I wanna say with Paul, as he did in the close of his letter, let all you do be done in love and let that love lead us to unity. Regarding sexual immorality, I've attempted throughout, throughout this series of messages not to pull any punches, while at the same time trying to communicate with compassion. It is not my intention to embitter people against the church. However, while it's true that we should be known by what we're for and not just what we're against, we also cannot hesitate to uphold as a church what is true regarding human sexuality and men and women. And God's plan in the scripture is clear. He doesn't give us 
overly rigid gender roles that would have all men out hunting big game while all the women are in the kitchen or something like that. But he does have a plan for men and women, and his purposes for men and women are distinct in some regards. Further, his good gifts get distorted in a culture that teaches that anything goes and that decries Christians as bigots for not affirming people in their sexual immorality. And it is precisely at this point that we must, as a church, listen to the warnings of Paul and be watchful and stand firm in the faith because we're not talking about differing sexual expressions only, but we're talking about expressions of rebellion against God's good plan and the idolatrous idea that we know better than he does. This is what the Apostle Paul addressed, not only in issues of sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians, but when he addressed idolatry in 1 Corinthians. People who think that they can can be liberal in their morality and it doesn't matter because God doesn't really care what we do with our bodies. But God does care. He is involved. And he does want us to be set apart, sanctified for him. And when this idea is brought into the church, the ideas of our our cultural sexual immorality, the ideas of, of, of affirming various kinds of sexual ideologies, when they get brought into the church and they are endorsed, as it is in some places, they end up trying to worship God on their own terms in those churches. The creature seeks to tell the creator what is right. And God will have none of that. If you want to see how he deals with circumstances like that, you can refer to Genesis chapter 11 in the Tower of Babel, where they thought they could get to heaven on their own terms, and God tore their tower down and told them that their false worship would not be tolerated. And today, many churches are doing the same thing with ideas that come from culture, seeking to create a God in their own image, especially around ideas of sexual immorality and gender. And our goal as a church is not to be harsh, but it is to uphold in this and any other matter where the culture would differ from worshiping God and him alone and from our submission to Jesus and him alone as Lord. Our our goal as a church is to uphold that right worship that says we will submit to God and his ways only because he's provided for us a savior in Jesus and all we need can be found in him. And on this point, we must stand firm. And we need to instruct the next generation about what is right concerning sexuality. This is a concern for the church and especially a concern for parents. And on this point, I say with Paul, be watchful. This is not a matter of indifference for future generations or even a matter of indifference for the current generation. If we will not be explicit about God's intentions for sexuality, if we refuse to be clear about what he desires, either because we are embarrassed or because we are afraid or ashamed, the world will be explicit. It already is about sexuality, and it will teach the next generation a sexuality that is not just an oops, but is actually a corruption of God's intentions and will lead them to idolatry, to worshiping themselves rather than the creator And so we must be watchful, church. This is another reason why I wanted to preach through 1 Corinthians. 
Even in this area of our lives, we must be watchful and teach the next generation. And finally, spiritual gifts. Paul had to rein in the Corinthians' over-realized spirituality. They seemed to think that they had reached the heights of spirituality, and they even thought of themselves as speaking in heavenly language or the language of angels. That's not really our problem, though. Our problem, in fact, may be the opposite, an under-realized spirituality. If they thought that they had achieved some heightened spiritual state that they hadn't really achieved, we seem to avoid things that are supernatural or spiritual in, in nature as if they are spooky or as if they are weird. And we can be skeptical of spiritual gifts and perhaps some of our skepticism leads to quenching the spirit. And we tend to have a material worldview rather than a spiritual worldview. But the cross of Jesus is the power of God to those who believe. Notice that Paul does not say that it is a sentimental relic for those who believe. The cross is not a metaphor of love. It is not a myth from which we can learn something for modern life. It is not a tradition in the sense of something that makes us feel stable but has no real effect. The word of God says this, the apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God has worked powerfully through the cross to save you. And that power does not stop, and that power is not a relic of the past. God is at work among us, and he's at work in us through the power of his Holy Spirit. We must have faith. We must submit to his leadership in our lives and in our church because there is something larger going on in the world than meets our physical eyes. There is a war being waged and Jesus' cross and resurrection are the decisive point, the turning point in this war, the point of victory in this war. And when Paul spoke about the resurrection, he did not use small terms about going to heaven or something like that. He put it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 27. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Church, we know and we preach a gospel in which we affirm that God is love. But make no mistake, this God who is love is at war with those who are in rebellion against him. He is warring against powers of darkness and he has bought the victory for our souls through his son, Jesus. If this was not the case, then the New Testament would have said something like all that stuff in the Old Testament about, you know, about uh, gods and, and the powers of idolatry and all that stuff the prophet said about the, the fallen angel, all that stuff, it's no big deal, don't pay attention to that anymore. But you won't find any provision in the New Testament for that. Instead, what the New Testament says is that God continues at this war and that he has won the decisive victory at the cross and none of those powers, be it human powers or spiritual powers, saw what was coming because God did it in a totally unexpected way because he is much wiser than any of them are. 
infinitely more wise. And so the battle rages on, the scripture says, but the final decisive victory has already been won. But what God desires is that all would come to him, that all would turn to him for repentance. But if we are so caught up in a materialistic worldview that has convinced us that all the cross is is a relic and a tradition or that it's just a ticket to heaven that we bought in the past and that one day when we die, our spirits will float up and, and God will let us in or Peter will say, why should you get in and we'll have that ticket and we'll be able to say, well, you you can let me in now. If that's all we think is going on, we will not be active in what God is doing in the world. We will not continue the work as the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, knowing that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. No church, what is going on is a spiritual battle and God has called us to this fight and he's won the decisive victory and through that, The author of scripture says, Paul says, that he has given gifts to men. He's given apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, according to Ephesians chapter five. Not only that, but he's given gifts of the Holy Spirit through his spirit who dwells in our hearts, as we have seen in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 to 14. And if we neglect those spiritual gifts that God has given because we consider them strange or spooky or something else, It is because we've bought into a materialistic worldview. It's because we've decided that it's uncomfortable to live in a rationalistic age and hold to a genuine biblical, spiritual worldview in which God actually wants to give his people gifts from the Holy Spirit. And this mission is not without opposition. Hell is not happy about the proclamation of Jesus' victory that God has given to us to proclaim to the world. The message we proclaim is that there's liberty and there's victory in Jesus and that he alone is Lord and hell seeks to make that message sound foolish. In our culture we can see that hell discredits the message on the news and daytime television and on sitcoms and through politicians who treat religion like a relic of human history who claim some form of religion but deny the power thereof. Didn't the Bible warn us? Didn't the apostle Paul warn us of people who would claim some sort of godliness but deny its power. And so we have politicians who claim to be Christians or believers of some kind, but they deny the power of what it means and they deny any transformation in their hearts and in their lives. And they treat religion as if it's just a relic or a way to gain votes or a way to gain popularity. It's a relic of human history. They think while we move forward in modern human wisdom, meantime, It seems that our culture will listen to any odd theory put out by our religious gurus, the scientists, or people who even claim that it's aliens who seeded the world, or UFOs, or the multiverse, or materialistic evolution, or something else. We say we're rational, and then we'll listen to any odd theory that someone claiming the title scientist happens to have. Side note, I'm not against science. Science is not a label you give to a person that can then speak as if there's some kind of man or woman from heaven sent from God. It's a method, and it was used by Christians very, very early on. And so I'm not speaking against the scientific method. I'm speaking about those who would claim a label and then try to speak as if they're experts on things that they know nothing about. They don't speak to spirituality. They don't speak to the wisdom of God. And yet people will will buy these cockamamie theories while claiming to be rational. Church, we must not fall into these traps. We must not entertain the ideas of psychics or crystals or ancient Eastern spiritualities. The cross is mocked as foolish. 
but it is the power and the wisdom of God. And we must hold on to that and hold to a spiritual worldview that recognizes God has given us good gifts. And we must not neglect nor deny those gifts because we fight a war that is not against flesh and blood, but is against powers and principalities and evil forces of this dark world. And we must not succumb to the thought that God has not given us what we need to be warriors in his battle. He has, and he wants us. From beginning to end, the scripture teaches us this story, that God created men and women. He told them in the garden to subdue the earth. And after the fall, his purposes and plans did not change. He had to change how he addressed us at various points in history as he revealed his purpose and plans to us. But his purpose for humanity was still that we would be his image bearers and we would rule the earth with him. And now, while that might have changed, we don't go out to conquer with sword and spear. God has given us this mission that we are to go into all the world and proclaim the good news. What's the good news? The good news is that Jesus reigns. That he died and God raised him from the dead and he reigns and he is Lord. And no one else is Lord, he's Lord. That's the good news. And he's called us to declare that good news. And of course, when you declare that good news at the gates of hell, hell's gonna push back. And that's why God has given us spiritual gifts that we must learn to walk in, in the power and authority of the Holy Spirit. And this is why we've preached through 1 Corinthians and studied it together. We might come to the understanding that as a church we must be united, that we must not succumb especially to sexual immorality, nor just adopt the immorality of our age as our own. We must not cover it up, we must not affirm it. And while we must be loving in how we address people, we must not be afraid to stand firm where God has put us. And we must be watchful, and we must be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, because God has called us to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and given us the gifts to do it. Let's not forsake them because they appear foolish to the world. And let's not abandon a worldview that recognizes the battle to which God has called us, nor the armor that he has given us in this battle. Would you close your eyes for just a moment? This message has been largely directed at believers and we've been wrapping up this series as we've walked through 1 Corinthians, but I did, uh, I did uh, highlight throughout the work that God has done for us through Jesus. The good news about Jesus is this, that you're no longer a slave, no longer a slave to your sin, to your own selfish desires, nor are you a slave to the gods or the god of this air, to the, the, the worldly forces and to the, the enemy of your soul, Satan. You're not a slave to him when you believe in Jesus. That you no longer have to be led about as you were before in darkness, wondering where you are and to whom you belong, that you don't have to wonder about what the meaning of your life is, what the trajectory of life is, or what the purpose of your life is, but that God gives a clarity in that, and he's won the decisive victory. He did this when he sent his son Jesus because of your rebellion against God and choosing your own ways, saying, I'm gonna do this my own way. I think I have a better way than God, whether it would be with any number of things, with how you treat other people, your failure to love, your sexuality, whether it would be in your work and your greed or in your pride or whatever it would be. Those things are manifestations of a rebellious attitude against God that doesn't submit to him, that thinks you've got a better way than he does. 
and that leads to death. It puts you under the power of Satan, the enemy. Puts you under his power of death so that you'll be cut off from God and his presence eternally. But God did not want that. That's not why you were created. It's not why he made you. He made you to know him and to love him and to have eternal life with him. And so in order to right that wrong in your life, in order to win that victory in your life, and in order to redeem your freedom, to buy your freedom, he sent his son Jesus. And Jesus took the punishment of your sin when he died on the cross. He took your death and he died in your place. But not only did he die in your place, he died so that you could die with him. So that you could die to your past, to your sinful past, to your rebellious past. You could die to those things and you could know new life in Jesus. And so on the third day, after Jesus was buried, God raised him from the dead. He lifted him up to give victory to him and to proclaim to everyone who will listen and to all who will believe that there is life and freedom and there is salvation in Jesus. And so if today you don't know Jesus, you don't have a relationship with him, what I'm not selling you is a ticket to heaven. I'm not trying to convince you that if you'll believe some kind of relic of the past that you'll have some kind of, uh, uh, you'll have some kind of ticket when you get to the pearly gates. That's not what I'm telling you. I'm telling you this, that God sent his son Jesus to die for your sin and that by faith in him, life can be restored to what it meant, was meant to be for you. That you can be restored to him in forgiveness and righteousness and freedom and that you can be set free from your past that has bound you and has kept you a slave to things that you did not want to be a slave to and you can be restored today and not only can you be restored today but you can be restored eternally that God will give you eternal life with him and that when Jesus returns you will be raised from the dead if you don't have that kind of faith in Jesus you've never given your life to Christ today I want to ask you to do that that you would believe that God sent Jesus he died for you he raised him from the dead and that forgiveness and freedom is found in him only. You don't have that relationship with God through Jesus, and today after hearing his words, you want to begin that. You want to know what it is to know God and to know forgiveness and to know Jesus. I'm going to ask you to do something simple, but as a way for you to respond, would you just lift up your hand? As a way for you to just say, yes, that's me. I want to know God's forgiveness. I want to know peace with God through Jesus. I want to be free from my past and the things that, I have done in my life that have set me apart from God and kept me from him. Is there anybody like that? If you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus like that this morning, would you just lift up your hand? Anybody in that place, anybody like that? If you are wanting to respond online, you can just text the word HOPE to 413-360-61. I'm gonna pray for any who may respond online and if you are unsure about this there are going to be some people here at the front of the uh front of the sanctuary this morning after service is over some prayer partners if you don't know what it is to give your life to christ or you would like to do that and you'd like to pray with somebody they're going to be available to pray with you and i'd encourage you to come and to speak with one of them so that you can learn more about what it means to give your life to christ and to have salvation let's pray together heavenly father in jesus name we thank you for the grace you've given us in your son jesus and we ask that you would help us lord we pray, Father, that you would forgive. Today, Father, I come to you and I confess my sin. I confess that I've lived apart from you and been cut off from you. Lord, I confess my rebellion, that I have thought of myself as being able to lead my own life and I have a better way than yours. But today, Lord, I recognize that's not true. 
I see that Jesus is Lord, and I believe that you raised him from the dead. Today, Father, I ask that you would give me new life in him, that I might never be the same. I pray for forgiveness of sin and for freedom in the future. We love you, and I thank you for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Church, be encouraged in the Lord. Let me read to you again as we close the words that the Apostle Paul said to the church in 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Let this be, let these be the words that mark us as God's people at Bethany Assembly of God in Jesus' name. Amen. Let him do it. Amen. Thank you for being here this morning. We'll see you tonight where we'll continue in prayer at our second Sunday at 6 prayer meeting. Until then, go in God's grace and in his peace.